Hi, my name's Noreen Jamil, and this is... Emily Kate Stevens. Both of us have been diagnosed with long COVID. And we've created this podcast dedicated to the condition. Welcome to the Long COVID Sessions. So, Emily, now you're on your little Greek island, how are you feeling? I'm feeling absolutely shocking. <laughs> I haven't slept. And I... I my whole body is buzzing. I feel like I've just done five days at Glastonbury and I feel awful. Um, but I've got a little bit of sunshine here. So I am going to take a little bit of time to try and recuperate a bit. As long as I can get some sleep, I, I, I think I'll be all right. How are you feeling? Well, it's raining for a start. Um so, so that's pretty much how you're feeling inside. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I've hit my my down. I'm on my way down. I can feel it. My heart rate's gone up. I'm getting shaky. Um, my chest hurts. I'm. It's actually painful and tight. The other night, I woke. I kind of got up quickly and went to to go to the bathroom and literally had such a constriction around my chest that I thought I was about to have a heart attack. And oh. I just waited three seconds to see if it was going to get worse and I'd have to wake up my daughter. But it kind of, it went away, luckily. And is there anything that you can do in those moments apart from thinking, am I going to have to wake up my daughter? Have you worked out any tricks? Is it sit, sitting down? Is it breathing exercises? Is there anything that you've worked out that does anything to help? No, I've just learned to wait and see, not to panic. Don't panic. Don't panic, Captain Mannering. And just, you know, kind of hold your breath and just hope it goes away. Panicking. When I get that constriction in my throat, I start to think I'm not going to be able to breathe anymore. Everything gets exacerbated. And it must be 10 times worse with the heart because it's, it must be so frightening. Yeah. Uh, it's just this this whole thing where you feel well and then feel unwell. And so when you do feel well, it's you can't even celebrate it because you know that you're going to feel unwell again. Yeah, I know. How How are you feeling mentally because after these past two weeks I'm fine I'm so depressed by the whole thing very depressed anyway we are trying to get other people through it so um um this week we had the opportunity to speak to Professor Danny Altman who is Professor of Immunology at Imperial College he's done a huge amount of work into the immunology of um, both COVID and now long COVID, and is really trying to find some identifying markers um, for the disease. It was great to spend some time with Danny, utterly charming man, very engaging and really able to talk about not just his work, but, you know, everything surrounding long COVID, which I think was important to us. Yeah, because he's so plugged in to so much of the... Uh, data and information I mean he is reading and tweeting but you know if you were a child and you were imagining what a uh, you know a professor would look like he is exactly a professor you and I were both just smiling from ear to ear when he sat down and he was wearing this white lab coat for us these amazing where's Waldo glasses and Einstein hair and this beautiful big smile and dimples and it was just it was a pleasure to talk to him And I hope you enjoy listening to what he had to say. 
So, Professor Altman, tell us a little of what your work involves historically and, and to date. Well, you know, I've been a professor of immunology for some decades now, which means I've spent my life really trying to understand mechanisms both in a range of, of infectious diseases around the world in a kind of global health setting and in autoimmune diseases, things like multiple sclerosis and type 1 diabetes and arthritis. And like anybody else in this kind of area, um, in the last 18 or 19 months, we thought it would be important for immunologists to do what they could to understand COVID. So we've worked seven days a week in the lab on COVID-19 immunology. And um, more recently, appreciating the importance of long COVID, we've um, worked on that as well. So what can you tell us about what's going on from an immunological perspective in cases of long COVID? So I depict the kind of current state of play with long COVID as really early days and a work in progress. And so the beginning is that it was a, a research field that was led by the patient groups and by the patient support groups and by the patient voices. And they named the condition and they described the condition and they published on the, on the condition and put the medical establishment to shame. And But on the other hand, new things happen and they don't pre-exist as, as a textbook in, in, in as, as textbook chapter. They just have to appear from somewhere and become recognized and become case reports and then become research studies and then become a thing. So this is now becoming a thing. So if you want to convince people that you need research and that you need clinics and you need answers, you need to be able to recognize it and count it and validate it. So that's really been the first generation of research. And so an awful lot of counting and epidemiology going on. And if you think about it, even that's not trivial, is it? Because you've got COVID-19, which has rampaged through the world, and the vast majority of people in the world who've had it know they've had it, but nobody else knows they've had it because their doctor doesn't know they've had it because they probably didn't manage to access a PCR test or a timely antibody test. And then we're saying we've got to kind of overlay another layer of uncertainty on top of that because we've got these people who've got this... Um, undocumented acute infection and they've gone on to have long-term consequences from that um, for which no doctor can order a test nobody can tick a box in their medical notes and their doctor may believe them or not believe them or be sympathetic or be, be unsympathetic we're trying to move on from the counting and recognizing phase into the what the hell is it and doing something about it phase and I hope that's where we come in. So kind of creating a definition and working out how we can actually diagnose it medically rather than uh, anecdotally. Yes but you know but easy to say but hard to do so when you say how to diagnose it diagnosing it implies that you've got some understanding of what it is and what it is you want to measure and how you're going to define it and so I hope that that's where we come in so obviously we're immunologists and we do think of it as an immunological pathway um, so you want to know things like, do people with long COVID have persistent virus somewhere in their body? Do they have dysregulated immune responses? Do they have autoimmunity? All of those kind of things. So we're now on a very hard push over the coming months, try and um, get in as many people as we can and look at those things in a fairly formal mathematical way. And, um, you know, just try and get some kind of um, rigor into the definition that people can work with. So you're basically masterminding this whole push to get a blood test so that, you know, people who suspect they might have long COVID, they can go in to see their GP, they can have a blood test, and we can have a diagnosis. 
Well, it's everything, isn't it? So, so, so partly it's, it's diagnosis and a blood test. But obviously, if um, if we had a blood test that was saying um, this characterizes you as a long COVID person who's different to the other kind of person, the person who definitely had this infection but was better, you know, eight days later, then presumably that blood test would be indicating something, wouldn't it, that you had a particular autoimmune response or a particular dysregulated part of your immune system or whatever, which in turn would point to what kind of drugs you might want to give to make a person better. Because at the moment, we have long COVID clinics, if you're lucky enough to live in a postcode where you can access one, and there's some very heroic people doing a lot of good work in them. But it's very variable. And um, so much of the treatment is, you know, scared person on one side of the table saying, help, I've got a terrible new disease. I don't, don't know what to do. Scared doctor on the other side of the table saying, well, I don't know what to do for you. I've never seen it before either. Um, panic on both sides. And let's try and do something symptomatic for you. If, you. if you think you can't breathe, let's maybe give you some breathing exercises. But as you can imagine, ultimately, that doesn't really solve the problem. One of the saddest bits of social media I saw recently was somebody saying, I finally got my long-awaited visit referral to the long COVID clinic, and all they offered me was breathing exercises, so I burst into tears, so they offered me psychological counselling instead. Um, and, you know, it's not because anybody's doing anything wrong, it's just because we're all so helpless, because we don't know what to do at the moment. So it's, it's all about trying to kind of get to the next step. What have you found in terms of, there are so many people that are going and having their routine blood tests, and it's not coming back showing anything what are the markers that you have um, started seeing in the long COVID sufferers versus the people who have had COVID? yeah so 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 we've been quite careful not to try and jump the gun and, and say too much too fast in case we we let people down but our approach was to say look people are looking at long COVID is quite a complex thing and describing more than 100 different symptoms and some people see value in kind of lumping them all together and saying, well, let's recognize this as long COVID if it's something that's to do with persistent symptoms that last several weeks after the acute attack. And some people take the word several to mean four weeks and some people take it to mean 12 weeks, but it means you know, long term disease. So those are the kind of lumpers who say it's useful to lump everything together. And I get that. And then there are also the splitters, the kind of stratifiers who say, well, it'd be more useful if we could separate the people who seem to be very kind of neurological, who have got the kind of cognitive things and the brain fog and things like that, compared to the people who feel like they're wheezy and breathless, um, compared to the people who have skin rashes, and I kind of get that as well. Um, so what we did was to be kind of almost completely agnostic to any of those terms and just say people either fit our definition for long COVID or they don't, and we'll be super rigorous by also taking ones who have backup from um, MRI analysis, from imaging, saying they had some organ damage. And all we'll do is we'll screen for autoimmunity. So, so you know, antibodies that have started attacking the body to every single protein in the human body. And whenever we get big hits that reproducibly light up in long COVID that don't in rapid recovery COVID, we'll call that a potential marker. And we'll keep going until we have the best possible cocktail of hits. And we'll call that our test. So that's been our approach. It's, it's completely um, brain dead. It's got no rationale. It's not hypothesis led. It simply says, let's look for the biggest hits that most significantly in a stats test define this group as being different from that group. And at the moment, those are those that are coming up are autoantibodies? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. So, so, so again, you know, I'm, I'm not going to try and claim that this quite diverse, quite complex condition is only and entirely explained by auto, autoimmunity. But it just seems like a really useful place to look. 
that is defining a lot of the cases. And there may be other stuff going on. You know, there may be um, the other hypotheses that we've put forward. Um, you know, it's a very damaging virus that kills cells. So if you had a lot of virus in your lungs and it kill, killed cells, and they're scarring there, that might be one of the things that accounts for your breathlessness. Um, so that clearly wouldn't be a direct measurable in the test we're doing at the moment. And yet if we can pick a test that kind of, like I said, you know, picks people in group A compared to people in group B, we don't care. We're, you know, we're happy. But if we look back at, at, at things that you have um, worked on before, you say that this is obviously a completely new thing. But what are, what are some comparisons in terms of the immunological effect or the way that it's affecting people's lives? I know that you've looked at, I mean, a lot of people have drawn comparisons with ME and CFS. Um, there's the normal post-viral fatigue, Epstein-Barr, and there's one that I can't pronounce that you have compared it to. Yeah, let, let's let, let's yeah no let, let's work through all of them. So so let's start let's go through each of those examples and maybe a few others. Viruses are really um, you know horrific weapons and they do really bad things to your body. So there's plenty of examples you could look at. So the question is which ones are relevant? ME and chronic fatigue syndrome. Every time I do anything or say anything about long COVID, I get a certain amount of vitriol. Like, who the hell is he to suddenly be interested in in this and suddenly jumping on this bandwagon? Where was he for the last several decades when we were asking for help? He wasn't very interested then, was he? And, you know, and why is he ignoring our problem? So my my mitigation for that is that obviously I can't work on everything. And if you say to me, well, why aren't you learning from ME and, ME and chronic fatigue syndrome to answer long COVID? It's because to me, from where I sit, if I look at what's been done up to now, it looks like a kind of um, Rosetta Stone where I don't really speak either language, but I'm hoping to kind of use one to decode the other. And I'm hoping that there's a payoff for both disease processes. But at the moment, I don't really understand either. So there's no point berating me for not using ME to illuminate this because I don't, I don't understand how to use ME to illuminate this or what the kind of keynote finding is. So I put that slightly to one side kind of for a later date where I hope that one will help the other and help all those people who do deserve help. Um, so then you look around at other things you know. So the first um, set of viruses I've started working on in my life was the, the herpes viruses like Epstein-Barr virus, um, EBV. And that's kind of helpful, I think, because, you know, whatever else anybody knows about post-viral conditions, everybody in, at some stage in their life has met somebody, you know, who's had glandular fever, particularly that's a critical time, like A-levels, university, whatever. And it's absolutely knocked them out and destroyed their life for months or years um and you know find it really hard you know to regain their balance um get back to work get back to partying get back you know get back to normal normal life and if you look at the immune correlates of that there are real life immune correlates to that because it's a virus that really wreaks havoc with your immune system and you know sits there and you know completely throws all the immune subsets out of kilter and it takes a long time before anything behaves normally again so i find that kind of useful and helpful um that's a good one. You mentioned them, chikungunya virus. So that's one that we work on. It happens in Africa, um, India, Latin America. We work on it in Brazil. And I bring it up in conversation quite a lot because I think it's just as a metaphor, not as a kind of literal parallel. I think it's useful because there you've got a country where people are used to being bitten by mosquitoes and getting nasty viruses, um, you know, Zika, dengue, chikungunya. And they, so they're used to the idea that you might get a, a transient viral infection where you have a fever and a rash and malaise and you feel bad 
and maybe a week later you're up and running again. And it dawned on people over the last decade or two that chikungunya was kind of different in a number of ways. And one of the key ways it was different was that 30 or 40% of the people didn't really get better. They got this kind of chronic autoimmune-like arthritis. And so long after they'd forgotten about the first week of the acute illness, they were still paying the price. And many of them out of work, out of the economy, um, family life disrupted. So that, that's why I think it's a useful um, analogy, both for the people, what they suffer, what the immune mechanisms are, what healthcare provision you need, that if you're the Minister of Health, um, the crisis you face with the acute attack might be small fry compared to the next several years you face of how to kit out all those clinics with all those doctors and all those nurses for all those appointments for all those sick people. Um, so lo lots of ways in which I think it's useful to bring it up to kind of bring to the attention of doctors, patients and, and policymakers. You know, and you could go on and on. You know, Ebola does, does similar things as well. You, know, you could go on and on. There's both kind of, you know, socioeconomic things to learn, but also mechanistic things to learn about how these things could happen. Yeah, so it's not necessarily just comparing the virology or in immunology. It's actually yeah, subsequent no. No, provision. All the viruses I mentioned are terribly different viruses. They couldn't be more different. And yet they've all got ways of kind of chucking this hand grenade into the immune system and making bad things happen. A lot of us are sitting back and are quite angry, and I, we follow you on social, and you can get quite angry as well. Um, Only sometimes. At <laughs> <laughs> um, the government, I mean, there is this... Just the other the other day on Newsnight, the, one of the sage advisors was saying that, you know, long COVID is just anecdotal and, you know, it's in your head. And I mean, there's a real reticence to medicalize it in some parts, even though that the government is throwing quite a bit of money into the research. What do you say to that part of the medical establishment? So the, the first thing that I would say, is, it's just a truism to me that medics are like anybody else. They're very um, variable and they come in all shapes and sizes and personalities and levels of kind of conservatism with a small c and so there'll maybe always be a tendency to say well if attention spans are overstretched and finances are overstretched and resources are overstretched i'll start out by believing in the things that i believe in and i know about and i was taught, taught about when i was a medical student and anything that's new and coming around the bend i'll worry about at a later date when somebody's proved it to me and not before so you could always kind of take that kind of view that, you know, you play it safe and wait to see if something's proved um, to which, you know, you wouldn't be surprised you know, to hear me say that um, how do things get proved? The way that medicine works, you know, there's no patient who ever walks into a clinic with the diagnosis tattooed on their forehead to make it easy for you. They just come in with a kind of range of bizarre symptoms that you may or may not understand or you may or may not have seen together in the same combination. And your job is to work out what on earth to do to make their life better when they walked out than when they walked in, you know, no, no more and no less. Um, so um, all I could say in response to people who say, well, you know, I don't even know if it's a thing or if people are making it up, is that I'm old enough to remember at the very start of my career that there were the beginnings of the beginnings of case reports coming out of San Francisco about this new syndrome that nobody had ever heard of and never described before that seemed to have something to do with terribly obscure lung infections and seemed to be more predominant um, possibly in, in the gay community in San Francisco and possibly was to do with using amyl nitrate, um, but it wasn't really clear what on earth it was. And, you know, it took maybe a year to settle on the, the, the these bizarre kind of disconnected case reports before 
something called AIDS and then, and then you know, HIV began to crystallize. But you know, it isn't there until people do the work on it. And people don't do the work on it until it's recognized and funded. When we first heard about this thing coming around the corner from Wuhan, you know, if we'd acted sooner, if we'd believed in it sooner, perhaps we would have saved more lives. Yeah, I just yeah. extrapolate that out to to what's going on with long COVID. Yeah, no, no, it's hindsight. No, I think we, I think we, we all watched the events in December two thousand nineteen, January twenty twenty. Um, you know, it's cliche, isn't it? But literally, like watching a slow motion car crash and saying, you know, why, why on earth isn't anybody doing the right thing about this? You know, it's so easy to do it with hindsight, and if you try and do it in real time. The risk is, you know, as has happened to me a lot, that you're you're accused of being um, a scaremonger or a whinger, and you know, can't you just, you know, now, now that um, um, the acute infection thing is getting better with with um, with the vaccines, can't you just enjoy it instead of whinging about a new thing and saying, you know, maybe we should start worrying about long COVID now? And you know, like anybody, I'm just trying to do my best to um, crystal ball gaze, but you know, it's like anything in life, isn't it? Being a good person in medicine or in business or parenting or anything is all to do with doing your crystal ball gazing and trying to avert the disasters. And that's all any of us spend our life doing, isn't it? Um, Very true. So all I'm trying to do is sort of be the person saying, well, hang on a minute. If there really are millions of people on the planet at the moment with long COVID and, you know, let's take a sort of medium to worst case scenario and say people are going to be quite deeply affected for two or three or four or five years, perhaps, I, I, I haven't a clue. And it is going to have impacts on employment law and healthcare provision and um, families and economies. Um, if you were doing your your policy making you know, well, wouldn't you want to be giving this some thought ahead of time? It's interesting because... Uh... I was uh, reading about the fact that because it's affecting women more statistically, that uh, this is the reason why people are quite happy to look the other way somewhat. And to me, it's like women our age, because both Emily and I have long COVID, we are the ones working still. We're still working. We're functioning in society. Mm -hmm. We're bringing up children, running households. And, you know, instead of prioritizing the kind of, the other gender we seem to be carrying the burden and carrying the burden of the society no i think I, I, it's totally true and I, I think i think the gender bias is part of that but i also think it's just it's the nature of politics and of government isn't it that um if i had a, a meeting with the cabinet and i said look you know there's a really good chance that um from my analysis and my, my modeling that um three quarters of a million people are going to be disabled in plane crashes in the next year in britain and it's going to look really bad for you. Let's address this. Now, God, would they address it? But if it's a kind of slow, deniable creep, why on earth would they put resources into it? What's the immunology behind uh, women being more affected than men? I yeah. mean, as much as 70, 80 percent in some in some studies. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd love to. Well, you know, I think we will try and do more on that. But so all, I can't say anything terribly intelligent. All I can say is, you know, that I, you know, from everything I've said up to now, I do think of quite a big core of the mechanism of long COVID as being autoimmune. And, you know, what, you know, what's the first fact that anybody ever knows about autoimmune diseases is that they're quite heavily skewed towards women rather than men. Um, if you look at, you know, practically any autoimmune disease, you know, and if you say, well, big deal. So why, why you know, we asked you, why is that? And, you know, and again, you've got to do a bit of hand waving, but, you know, the answer is obviously that um, there are quite, quite big differences in the kind of immune programming between 
men and women to do with all the obvious things to do with um, XY, XY chromosome differences and sex hormones and how, how they sort of extend different immune subsets in different directions during development and during puberty. So the answer is it's that for all it's worth, but you know, we've got to work out you know, some of the detail behind that because of, again, that leads to um, tests and therapeutics and things. Interesting. I also think that it could possibly be to do with Noreen's point, the fact that the, the women that are being affected are the ones also who are continuing to care for children and to... So that yeah. kind of it compounds it. Mm-hmm. Something you just mentioned, has anything become apparent um, to you about the effects of the different vaccines on long COVID? Because there are reports both ways um, and it seems to be slightly different with different vaccines. Yeah, no, um, you, you probably know at least as much as I do. So, you know, I've been following it closely and, you know, so far it's the reporting coming out of the different support groups in different countries, isn't it? Some quite big ones and at least one of them written up so far as as, 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 a, as a preprint. And meanwhile, a more formal um, randomised control study being run by um, Akiko Iwasaki out of Yale. And um, if I kind of do a sort of meta-analysis in my head of everything that's been said, I take it that there's probably a good, what, 40 or 50% of people who are saying they felt somewhat better after vaccination, even if only temporarily, which obviously is quite a hard thing to define in a disease course that seems relapsing and remitting anyway. And that of the remainder, maybe a quarter reported no difference and a quarter reported kind of having relapses or feeling worse or whatever. So that, that's my kind of, you know, sort of off the cuff meta-analysis, what I've heard so far. Some people even dispute whether the sort of 40 or 50% who feel better whether it's the real thing or whether it's kind of placebo effect in a disease that's in any case can relapse and remitting. I, I wonder if it possibly is the real thing in the sense that um, if one of our theories for some aspect of long COVID is people who've got a reservoir of virus sitting sitting somewhere who didn't completely clear it and just have a sort of you know persistent, persistent infection, you could imagine that if you had an enormous boost of antibody production from a really good vaccine, um, you might deplete that reservoir or get rid of that reservoir and feel better. So I could rationalise it. That's I'd, I'd really interesting. Like it's sort of the, that antibody flushes out the the residue. Yeah, yeah. I yeah, mean, yeah. just anecdotally, Emily had a very different response to mine. But I go with your theory that it's it's this Corona coaster up and down of the system. So mm-hmm. Emily had a really bad response, didn't you? Yeah. To uh, you were very feeling very unwell after your. Uh, and after my vaccine i was feeling great mm. and, but i just wonder if it and then i subsequently relapsed and i again went felt better and relapsed and i would just wonder if it was a coincidental thing that she felt bad then felt better then felt bad but you know but covid19 has been such an emergency that you know i, I do feel like we've all you know really you know pulled the stops out to try and really work fast and have gone from standing start of knowing not a single thing about this virus, not even you know that, that it existed or what its sequence was, to, to having done more work on it and published more papers on it than any other virus I've ever worked on in my life. Um, and yet we're still kind of making it up as we go along and flying blind, because almost any question you ask me, I'm sort of struggling to think, and I'm thinking, have I read maybe one paper on that? Has there been one study somewhere in the world on that? Um, because, you know, just there hasn't been enough time gone by to do enough studies. So, you know, when you talk about why do some people do well and some people do bad after a vaccine it just reminds me that in all of my contact with the group with the support groups um you know for every person who i come across 
who thinks that a particularly poor or deficient or waned antibody response to the virus might in some way be connected to their long COVID. I meet another person who's been told they've got a very overactive immune response and they may have made too big a response to the virus or the wrong kind of response to the virus or, you know, be hyperactive. And that might explain their long COVID. And it's not because either person is stupid. It's just because we don't have the data and we don't know. And, you know, normally we're used to, um, you know, we're, you know we're, we're used to basing our stuff on, you know, big studies. Do you think there are people are in the world who are immune to COVID naturally? Oh, God, that's a really, really, really tough one. Um, so um, if you're trying to work out the immunology of, of, of COVID, you know, one of the things you've got, you've got to explain is the disease spectrum, isn't it? You know, the whole globe has been flooded with virions in the last 18 months. And we've got a spectrum from people who've worked in hospitals day in, day out, where they've been exposed to patients and at the beginning weren't really offered much um, PPE and have never shown any signs of being infected at any level, not PCR, not antibody, not anything. There's some people who are in that situation who had a positive PCR test, but actually were completely asymptomatic and never shared any symptoms whatsoever. There's your kind of average COVID person who um, felt absolutely rubbish, ill at home, but never kind of passed the test to be allowed to go to hospital and ambulance, even though they may have felt near death at home. And then there's people who are severe enough to go to hospital, or intensive care or indeed die yeah so same virus apparently normal healthy looking people and this enormous spectrum of responses so um almost the biggest question to be resolved is is what are the determinants for that spectrum um and you know lots of theories out there um we we used to quite like the idea at the beginning of the outbreak that there was a certain amount of cross-reactivity with different common cold coronaviruses and that might see you through. And I feel like that hasn't panned out terribly conclusively and we're kind of none the wiser. There's a new version of that going around in a preprint saying that actually, if you look at those people, the kind of highly exposed but negative people, they do have particular subsets of T cells against a particular cross-reactive part of the virus that's kept them safe and stopped them ever even really becoming infected in the first place. So that idea is quite snazzy and, and, and doing the rounds. Or, um, you know, you could look to other things, you know, the sky's the limit, you know, I'm thinking about bats, you know, you know, every bat species in the world harbors pretty nasty or nasty to us coronaviruses, and they never get sick from them at all. And that's because they've got very fancy interferons and things that stop the virus ever really getting hold. Um, so maybe some humans are a bit more bat-like in that. <laughs> I'll tell my husband. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Have you seen any correlation between the effects of the long COVID and the severity of the acute illness? Again, yeah, and there's a lot of really important questions. So I think there's a lot of data flying around and people have made some very kind of definitive comments and, and slightly, I think, confused and muddled themselves. So, so, you know, because at the beginning, publications were heavily skewed to people who'd been hospitalised and severely because hospitalised. Because that's the data sets that they had available. Yeah, exactly, and been in intensive care. And... Um, Clearly, if you've been in intensive care and you've been ventilated, there's going to be all kinds of damage to your lungs um, because it's, you know, it's a very aggressive thing to do to somebody's lungs that isn't you know, physiological. And there's all kinds of tissue damage and scarring and all kinds of things. So there was a temptation at the beginning to say long COVID is a thing that follows on from very severe infection and it's post-intensive care 
and um, and in some way, you know, clearly that's part of the story, but in some ways it's almost kind of unhelpful, isn't it? Because there's a sort of natural segue from saying that into almost kind of trivializing it as a special subset and saying to qualify as long COVID, you need to be in very ill and intensive care. And the reason you're ill is, well, why wouldn't you be? You've just come out of hospital after a terrible event. It's almost like, a sort of, you know, PTSD. So to me, in my head, that's a kind of tiny subset of the argument, because what I see when I look at the data is you can get long COVID if you're a person like that. You can also get long COVID if you're way back at the opposite end of the spectrum. Somebody who was a household contact of people who had COVID, but you were completely asymptomatic, um, and yet you've gone on to have the sequelae. Yeah, so so I think it works all the way across the spectrum. COVID obviously comes from SARS and MERS. Why why aren't people not comparing it with that? And also, did those people? Because I was in the middle, living in the Middle East when MERS was occurring, that the people who had MERS, the the, the data that the doctors following them after they were showing viral effects, post-viral effects, that we're not, doctors are not looking at that or that data? Yeah, and that's a good question, isn't it? So, so, so again, it's sort of wisdom of hindsight, isn't it? So, so I need to come scour the data. My impression is that now, once we got to know about long COVID, people did go back and look at the data sets on SARS and MERS, which is obviously a teeny, teeny data set by comparison in terms of the number of affected people. But there and, are comparisons in and the... Did, and, did, and, did, and did find people, um, you know, a significant subset who had persistent symptoms and nobody had ever noted it or cared about it. Right. So it's safety in numbers, basically. Yeah, it's to, yeah. Do with the, it's to do with the sheer number of people being affected so rapidly. And it's, it is going to be an absolute tsunami on our mm. health and social system. Yes. Um, but, it, but, the, the, but the question about SARS and is actually a very good one. And... Um, what I should probably do is, is make, if it isn't being done already, get in touch with some SARS friends who are following up SARS cohorts and say, you know, one of the biggest things that people want to know is how long is this going to go on for? And because SARS is, um, what, you know, 13, 14 years ahead of the curve on this, um, plot some curves for us on the kind of kinetics of the symptoms and, and tell us how long it's going to take to go away. And that would be a very helpful paper to publish. Yeah, fascinating. You found a great paper the other day, didn't you, Noreen, that um, looked back at some of the some of the previous publications? I did. I don't want to share the depressing data there. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the prognosis did not look good when we read that. No, um, I mean, in your in your in your understanding of these kind of chronic illnesses and immunological responses, do you think we will get better, or do you think this is now a lifetime? chronic thing that because I find for me that if my kids bring home a virus I'm immediately knocked back and my long COVID symptoms become much more aggressive. I, I just wish I knew what to predict because you know from, from all the things we talked about before I could you know I could plot you a kind of timeline couldn't I have the different vaguely related examples I know where obviously um, you know ME um, CFS people report some decades um, chikungunya or Ebola people report, um, you know, four or five or six or seven years. And really, glandular, yeah, yeah, yeah. Glandular fever um, people tend to report one or two years. And, and um, the glandular hmm. fever, the Epstein Barr, remains in your system permanently, doesn't it? Yeah. So, does, it, does it eventually clean out? That's, no, that's right. There's, so, so, one of the things, one of the many things that made us so blasé and so ignorant 
was thinking, well, we know about um, the coronaviruses. Um, you know, it's like a common cold virus. They didn't do anything very fancy. They're not very clever. They don't mutate very much. And almost every word we said was wrong. Almost every word I, I said was wrong. Um, because um, if if you'd um, asked me to predict whether there'd be any long-term persistent consequences, I mean, if you'd asked me that, um, whatever, you know, in um, um, January 2020, I'd have been so confident and I've said, oh, almost certainly not. You know, it's not, it's not what coronaviruses do. You're getting confused because you're talking about persistent viruses that stay in your body, like Epstein-Barr virus or cytomegalovirus or herpes simplex virus. And these don't do that. Um, and I'd have been completely wrong. Well, hopefully we will eventually flush it out. Hopefully it's not going yeah, to yeah. literally stay forever. Uh, what, what do you think of the um, government's telling everyone just get the vaccine and now we're going to we're going to live with it and we're all going to circulate free freely and live with the virus because for people like us I mean I'm still wearing a mask I'm still being Mm. very cautious I I mean I don't I go to the sort of supermarket but I don't really don't go out that much and spend a lot of time with other people because I I just it's not a two weeks flu and it's over um and with the vaccine now with the breakthrough cases with uh, of covid with the vaccine i don't necessarily think that we're all safe and i think that if we all just go out and behave like normal we're going to end up with a lot more people with long covid even if people aren't hospitalized or die from the actual infection no i i I couldn't agree more you know so many there have been so many um you know unprecedented challenges haven't there and it's been very hard for me to learn the language of the interface between science, medicine and policymakers, because it's not a language I'm used to speaking and I don't think we understand each other well, well, if, if at all. Um, although sometimes there's a sort of guise of, of understanding each other. And um, so I just feel like when I hear people say, now or never, get over it, don't cower in front of the virus. The, the version I heard on Friday was a kind of slogan, we need, we need to learn to live in, with confidence against the virus, and I was thinking, what is it? What do the words even mean joined together? How do you live with confidence against a virus? Um, and does the virus care or know that you, you're you're feeling confident? Um, and you know, and and I I just think that for policymakers, they're actually taking decisions of incredible enormity for future generations um, or future centuries of what's our relationship with this virus going to be as determined now? Are we going to be quite stringent and rigorous and try and stamp it out? Or are we going to say, well, needs must, we want to get our economy back on the, on, on, on the road um, because money is what really matters. So if it kind of percolates in perpetuity with variants of concern every year or two forevermore, I won't be in power anymore to pay the price, so I won't mind really. Um, you know, these, these, these have these, you know, these are enormous scientific and medical and ethical debates that historians will be writing textbooks on for years to come. Yeah, it is a major ethical debate. They're kicking the can down the road in terms of this crisis. And, you know, with so many of us not able to work, the arguments don't really stack up. And I do completely understand that people just, from a mental health perspective, want to just go out there and live their lives normally and feel like they're free from the virus. It's just hard from the perspective of someone who, I mean, I've had long COVID for 16 months now and it's getting to the stage where I'm just so day to day not knowing when I'm going to feel okay is really depressing. Yeah, no, no I, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. 
um, these are such difficult debates and they they hark back to some of our most sort of basic debates about human freedoms and things and the ability of my 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 you know my right to freedom to impact yours um you know m many of the debates we're having about um unlocking and unmasking and things are are no different to debates that um, the USA has been having for God knows how many decades about gun laws and you know whether my right to buy a submachine gun and take it into my secondary school um, impacts your children's rights not not to be shot at school. I mean, I think it's even easier than that. It's the smoking. Yeah, you indeed, can't, precisely. You can't even yeah. smoke in the in the in LA. You can't smoke on the streets. Yeah. You know, it's just my idea of going into a restaurant and sitting next to someone who's unvaccinated is exactly the same argument. Totally. Yeah. It's a, but the problem with it is, at least you can see and smell someone smoking. You can't tell that someone's unvaccinated. Well, you know, there was a lot of uh, great publicity on, on from some media outlets about your blood test. I hope I hope it didn't get out of control. We tried very very hard I to, know. Um, I know. to, to, to restrain say, them. You did say six months. Are we? Are we? Are you still on track for that? When do you think? You might possibly have. I think I, I hope so. I mean, you know, so so we have constant lab meetings. We do the work constantly, and in times of COVID, things go very, very, very fast. Um, so um, you know, I think I think it's near to six months and six years. Yes, and um, and hopefully near to six months and twelve months. Can I just say you're a great Twitter follow, and everyone should follow you. It's, oh, that's very the, kind. Thank uh, you. Uh, as you are at D Altman ten. That's the one. Yes, thank you. Yeah, so uh, everyone should give um, Professor Altman a follow because he—it's not just about his, you know, speciality. You, you tweet a lot about long COVID as well. And um, at the weekend about pterodactyls as well. Yes, I know. I learned that. Uh, what, what was the name of that? They—they—they they, they fly from birth or something. They can fly from birth exactly. Yeah. I guess they'd have to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Fabulous. Um, our, our main following that we're building is long COVID sufferers. So we're really Brilliant. trying to um, just help people understand what is going on for them and what the Brilliant. possibilities might be for them long term. And our listeners really want to understand the, the medicine. So I think we're focusing more on getting doctors and psychologists and physiotherapists and immunologists on to talk. And we'd hope you come back and talk with us at a later date. When yeah, that's, that sounds terrific to me. Brilliant. Fabulous. It's so remarkable that only after a year or 15 months of this disease actually being identified as possibly something that people are suffering from, that you can walk into your GP, Hopefully. have a blood test and have someone validate all your symptoms with saying, yes, you have long COVID. And that is bloody amazing. Hopefully. Fingers yeah. crossed. Fingers crossed. But that would be, I mean... It's... It would be remarkable. And I think it would be hugely helpful to all these people who, at the moment, are being... A lot of people are still being made to think that they're, that they're making it up or these symptoms that... From that Newsnight interview the other day, these, these symptoms are somehow psychosomatic... It's, or... The problem is it's not even been identified as a proper illness yet. The WHO in October have said that they're going to define what is long COVID. So it's not even been officially defined as, as an in illness, a syndrome, a disease, anything. All diseases have an ICD-10 designation. Once they're officially recognised or registered. Yeah, it's you know super important for everybody that's suffering from long COVID, you know, what it means to get this designation. An ICD-10 means that there is a disease called long COVID.
Very simple. That's recognised by the you know world's governing health body. Yeah. So that's what we need to work towards. And anything like this blood test would would just get us that bit closer to having something, a, an official diagnosis. Absolutely fascinating, man, Danny Altman, and the, the work that he and his, and his lab are doing is really quite remarkable. And hopefully that's going to give us answers that we, we're all looking for. Join us next week as we hear others' experiences of long COVID. Share your stories and questions at tlcsessions.net. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram for the latest updates. And if you found this interesting, please do subscribe.